Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the teaching project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Dan Ritchie, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 2006. My name is Dan Ritchie. I've been at Bethel for 33 years. I teach English literature and I uh, developed the humanities program. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and my uh, dad was a, he sold industrial equipment. So I did not grow up in an academic environment, but I became a teacher really uh, through the influence of a couple of great teachers in my life. I remember almost the moment where I realized that one could become a professor. There was a a man who went to our church who taught at the Presbyterian Seminary in Louisville. And uh, when my dad told me that he actually just taught uh, postgraduate students all day, I could hardly believe it. (laughs) I had a great deal of respect for this person and admired him a lot. Uh, I thought what he did was important. And uh, so... Uh, that was significant for me. I also had an excellent piano teacher uh, who was a very strong Calvinist, like my dad. So I thought Calvinists were uh, always very passionate people who loved the arts. <laughs> I wasn't aware of the stereotype. These were both uh, men. They were both male models. And uh, I had a wonderful Spanish teacher, uh, a woman in high school who had very high standards. And the love of books, the love of beauty, and uh, kind of rigorous standards, all of those appealed to me. I took a year off of uh, school after high school because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And during that year, I uh, studied uh, literature some. I worked for my dad. I worked for a newspaper. And I took a course at the University of Louisville from one of the early Joyce scholars named Richard Kane. He wasn't a very good classroom teacher, but he loved his subject, and he passed along his love for James Joyce in this class that I took. Uh, And I thought it was the most beautiful writing uh, that I'd ever encountered. And so I wanted to uh, study literature, uh, uh, English literature, uh, based on that. Since it was Joyce's Ulysses that got me interested. I thought I should read the Odyssey in Greek as a, as a student. So I studied Greek in college, never was very good at it. Um, but that desire to study literature really from its, its origins and to, to look deeply into, um, into texts was formed right after high school. And when I went to college, I I thought that I might want to become a professor or a journalist. 
I was a pretty serious student, kind of nerdy like a lot of uh, future professors, I think. Um, I, I never uh, fit in with, uh, too well with the most social students, either in high school or college. Maybe not as imaginative as some students, but, uh, but pretty, pretty thorough. Uh, and the other elements, the more affective relational elements, really came later. They came later as I uh, came to Bethel and became a teacher. After college, I spent a year as a journalist, both in Louisville and in eastern Kentucky. I covered a coal strike for the daily newspaper down there. But I didn't feel like I could get into the deeper questions about human motivation and outcome and so on as a journalist. And so uh, I went to graduate school. My wife-to-be... Uh, was going to go to Princeton Seminary, so uh, I found uh, graduate school in uh, nearby Rutgers. I did have a wonderful graduate advisor uh, named Paul Fussell, and he, w he wrote a lot about war. Uh, he was in World War II, he wrote a great book about World War I, but he was an 18th century scholar. And he was also a journalist. He wrote for the New Republic and, and other magazines. So he embodied both the public side with that he called it high journalism. It was very much like Swift and Samuel Johnson, with serious literary study. And that appealed to me immensely. And he was a humanist of the old school. He, he believed in a kind of uh, decent and humane uh, um, ideal that uh, the people in the 50s and 60s up through the 70s believed in. So that, that affected me uh, a lot. Um, if there's any single individual, it would be, it'd be Paul Fussell. In 1985, when I was finishing my uh, PhD, there were very few jobs in English literature and still fewer in uh, 18th century literature. But there was an opening uh, I heard through a family friend at Calvin College. And so I wrote to Calvin and discovered that to be on the Calvin faculty at that point, you had to be a member of the Christian Reformed Church. My wife, Judy, had just been ordained in the Presbyterian Church, so there was no way we could do that. However, the head of the English department at Bethel at the time, Dan Taylor, was a good friend of the search committee at Calvin at Erickson. And uh, Dan had called Ed, and Ed mentioned my name. So through a family friend and then a phone call, I heard about Bethel. And I was so naive about Bethel and Christian higher education, I remember asking on the phone if the integration of faith and learning was important at Bethel, University, at Bethel College at the time. And uh, Dan was very, very polite and, and, and didn't, didn't laugh back. But uh, that's how little I knew about uh, Bethel and Christian higher education. There's certain things that I think probably about all of our personalities that make us good teachers and that also uh, pose challenges to us. The more effective and relational parts I think I've had to learn uh, uh, along the way. And I learned that from students. I learned it especially from my first England term trip. But uh, I'm a strategic person, uh, I'm an analytical person, and I, I like achieving. And so uh, helping students achieve a certain amount of understanding, being sure they, they analyze texts uh, fairly and fully, I think is, is helpful. I think I'm pretty good at, at planning things out so students know what to expect. 
But other things uh, like um, r really being a very good listener, <laughs> I think for me are, are very much learned skills and uh, had to come later and, and I still don't think I'm uh, the best at that. The strengths of my early teaching would include content and planning and, and thoroughness and, and that sort of thing. But uh, the, the dean who sat in on, on my class that first year said, uh, remember this is not a graduate school seminar. Um, and he, he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, um, e even a lecture is an implied conversation. And um, I think most good teachers at Bethel, they know that. They, and even the ones uh, who like lecturing, they realize it's an implied conversation. But that implies that you're actually listening along with the students to what you're saying and asking yourself what questions they might have or could have if, the, if you make the material interesting enough. Um, so th that's something I, I had, to, had to learn. I think I learned about teaching like a lot of people by team teaching. And so I was on a CWC team my second year and continued uh, with uh, interruptions for England term and sabbatical for uh, at least seven years on uh, CWC. And so I got to see how uh, Mike Holmes and Neil Lettinga uh, and others lectured and then especially having team meetings where we talked about our small groups, that was absolutely crucial. And um, we've continued that in, in the humanities program uh, I think it's a great strength of Bethel to have these, these kinds of classes. But be, being able to translate that into classes that are not team taught uh, is one of the great gifts of these classes. That you become self-aware of your teaching strategies and other, other people's strengths. Um, for instance, uh, I think Marion Larson is, is one of the best uh, teachers at coming up with creative and effective teaching ideas. And so you realize that there's some people that are really good at that. Um, uh, then there are others, uh, Wayne Rosa is just a, a great lecturer. So being able to learn from uh, Paul Reisner or Ray Van Aragon or these, these people has just been a great gift. I didn't feel comfortable in the classroom until my third year really. And then uh, after five or six years, I took my first uh, England term group. And it was there that I saw more vividly than ever before the significance of the teacher-student relationship. I'm still not sure I buy Edgren's notion that, our t that students are our friends. Uh, they've become friends over the years. But regardless of what word you use, um, the living in pro close proximity, traveling together, and, and seeing each other in spontaneous situations was to me um, a, a teaching experience that was richer than any, anything I'd experienced before, either as a student or as a teacher. I've tried to bring that in uh, to other locations, for instance, in, de in developing the humanities program, we have students or can have them for four semesters in a row. So you really do develop a relationship with a student over four semesters. And even more, 
the teaching assistance that we have in programs like Humanities or CWC, where you see these young people developing intellectually and personally and having to respond to situations that are unexpected. So moving from content to relationship uh, was one big stage. And then a, a third stage is, would be being strategic. Um, so in developing humanities, um, I, I saw after I'd been here about 15 years that, that there were overlaps between what the arts and theology and CWC and the writing course do, ways that we could be more strategic, slow down in some ways and cross-fertilize in others. Um, so for me, the, the arc would be uh, content, relationship, and strategic. The fact that Bethel is a, a Christian school uh, affects me uh, completely, day, day in and day out. Um, I, I think we see in higher education the, the, the problem with uh, universities not having a, a clear vision of, of who they are. Uh, there was an agreed upon kind of cultural um, assumption about what the university should do, especially after World War II. Um, the Harvard Red Book was a, a very famous curriculum that came out just after the war, and the purpose was to train people to be uh, good citizens. And there was a kind of agreed upon idea as to what that meant, but that really became unraveled in the 60s and subjected to huge criticism that has continued uh, to this day. And uh, a Christian college it certainly can't avoid that, but it can finesse it in a way by having uh, an even stronger purpose, a purpose that we need to discuss and debate, but a purpose about forming, um, as we call it, whole and holy persons at Bethel. Or there could be another vision for a Christian college. But I think in developing a, a, a syllabus, whether it's for 18th century literature or for um, the theology paper in our humanities class, uh, we I have Bethel's uh, self-understanding in mind, at least in the back of my head or developing a, a course on Islamic literature, which I did. Um, seeing how Christians interact with Islam is an obvious thing for us to do, but it may not be obvious at another school or how to go, how to go about the interaction of the uh, dominant culture in the U.S. with Islam would be a much more fraught kind of question. I think a lot of uh, students think they should study literature uh, simply because it's their language and that's not a bad place to start or uh, because uh, literature is is fun and that's not a bad place to start either. Uh, literature should delight and instruct. Uh, Horace said it, Sir Philip Sidney said it, so it must be true. Uh, and in a way you can't get any deeper than that. Uh, it delights by instructing. Uh, it delights, and then it instructs. Nobody quite knows how they go together. But I think everybody uh, understands that the two are related. Let me give you an example. Jane Austen is very popular. 
uh, these days, especially among women, but, but men should definitely read Jane Austen. Why is she popular? Uh, that, that's the kind of question that uh, a student of English literature needs to ask. You take what has been appealing and then you ask why, why has it been appealing? So the same question could be asked of science fiction, it could be asked of Shakespeare. And as soon as you genuinely interest a student in that question, they become students of English literature. So uh, for Jane Austen, uh, there's something about her wit. There's something about the way men uh, relate to women or don't relate to women. Uh, something about um, the, uh, uh, the, the struggles of the, the younger sibling. Uh, all of those are, are deeply human and uh, they appeal across time. And the same is true of Shakespeare. As soon as students get, uh, get a mastery of the language, they see that the figure of Falstaff is uh, funny and yet dangerous in interesting ways. They love Prince Hal and Henry V, and yet they realize that his kind of male spirit has its dangerous side as, as well. So it's delightful and it's instructive. And uh, all of us need that in a, I think we definitely need it in a, in a democracy, in a free society but we need it as human beings as well. The humanities matter because they attempt to ask uh, the why questions. Why, um, why do we believe in equality? Uh, and why, what do we do when uh, liberty, when the uh, freedom to form different groups, the freedom to act as we want, uh, bumps up against equality? The great, the great questions of, of democracy. Um, who, are, who are the gods? What are the gods? What is God? Uh, do, we, do we make God in our own image? Is it, uh, is it merely a social construct as we misuse that phrase today? Or is there something beyond it? These are questions that can't be answered through your vocational life, through business. They can't be answered uh, strictly through science. Uh, they, they're the questions that make us human. And uh, it, our, our society uh, depends on having uh, people who can ask those questions as they arise in new forms in every generation, which they always do and always will. Uh, no one has ever imagined uh, a free society of uneducated people. It can't be done. And we're engaged in an experiment which uh, may succeed but may very well not succeed. Uh, based on our uh, ability to have enough people uh, willing to ask those kinds of questions and to pay attention to the answers. Aristotle said uh, music teaches us about the emotions and uh, I'd like to believe that. I'm not sure I believe that. A lot of people who are great musicians don't seem to know very much about the emotions <laughs> even though they have them at their, uh, literally at their fingertips. Uh, but I, I, I believe what Aristotle said. Um, people can start crying when they hear a beautiful melody or symphony of, of Beethoven or, or just a melody from Chopin or they hear a jazz riff. It doesn't just serve a cathartic appeal uh, but it also can, can teach you what's, what deserves 
a, a powerful uh, emotion, whether it's of joy or of sadness, or, or even of, of just comedy and, and uh, almost satire. Um, and music can do that in a, a purer way than any other field, including poetry, including the one I love the most. Without that, your life is impoverished. Uh, and some people will find that in, in Bruce Springsteen. Uh, some will find it in Bob Dylan, uh, who are also great musicians. Um, but there, there are many things that you can think of where if, if you didn't have them, your life wouldn't be that impoverished. People live very full lives without cars. They live full lives without televisions or iPods. But if you lived before Beethoven, uh, you were missing something. And uh, uh, what you're missing was a way of exploring uh, emotions in ways that only Beethoven can do. Really the best college class I had in, in, at Amherst was in physics. And it was first semester physics. It was very hard for me. I only took a couple of physics classes. They were beyond me. But there too, in some ways, physics is the most spiritual of the sciences. I hope the biologists and chemists will forgive me for that. But I remember one of my physics teachers saying, the reason he loved it is you didn't have to know anything. <laughs> you just have these equations and everything, uh, everything comes from there. Of course, he was exaggerating. But um, the, the idea that, um, and it is an idea, that the universe would correspond to equations uh, is so beautiful and uh, uh, extraordinary. It, uh, it, it teaches you something about creation that, uh, that literature doesn't, that the fine arts don't. Uh, and in the, in the other sciences, in biology, I'm thinking uh, the same thing is true, only you get your hands dirtier than in physics. Uh, but it's, it's the same notion that there actually is uh, a code on DNA that, that tells us about human life. It doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us a lot about human life. And, and there's a, a, a consonance, there's a, there's a, a relationship between uh, the, the code that we find in, in DNA and, and great poetry and indeed, I think, the code that, uh, that God spoke into being. Uh, so if it's done with a, a mind that's awake, it can find parallels. But it can't find the parallels until the hard work is done first. For me, I think uh, teaching is a craft. There are elements, I'd be very skeptical about thinking of it as a science, and yet, uh, I know from the, uh, our own uh, teaching and learning technology people, there, there are certain things that uh, if, if you can put them in a system, it really does help student learning. I'd be reluctant to describe it as an art, um, although that may be the truest, because that seems to raise it beyond the, the level that most of us can attain. To me, craft, the, the best example of craft would be something like musicianship, where there, there is a, a, a love for the, the transcendent quality that gives life to what you're doing, and yet you have to practice your scales. And the same is true in teaching. Uh, 
you get into teaching primarily because there, there's something uh, beyond the material to, uh, to which the material points, but you can't lead students into it unless they master the material. And your ability to, to communicate that in, a, in an effective way is a, is a craft. I, I was just working today with uh, Kent Gerber and had been working with Charlie Goldberg on a, a new idea for a class for this spring. And I guess I'd consider that uh, kind of improving my craft by learning from these digital humanities people a way in which I can uh, convey or help students understand the, the way Swift's imagination works and Johnson's and Mary Shelley's and uh, Coleridge's imagination. That's what we're working on. At, but this project involves a lot of craft. Uh, and it will either work or not work, uh, depending on how well, especially I, craft the project with the help of these uh, colleagues. I, I think the best metaphors for, for teaching are probably uh, pilgrimage and gardening. Uh, uh, in, in pilgrimage, you have some sense of where you're going, but not a complete sense of where you're going. And there are all kinds of way stations along the way. You depend upon the hospitality of many others, uh, such as colleagues and, and students. Um, you get uh, sometimes tricked into doing things that you hadn't counted on, like team teaching or, or traveling with students that turn out to be as important as your original plans. And the things that happen along the way are as important, if not more important, than the, the final destination. So the, the metaphor of, of pilgrimage, uh, I think, is a very powerful one. It's also a holy image, which uh, our, our craft is. I think the people uh, who, who are watching this are likely to, to believe that. Gardening is another great, great metaphor, because uh, you do have to plan. Uh, my wife is a great gardener, and she makes diagrams. She, uh, she plans well in advance uh, what the garden's going to look like. But then some things thrive and some things don't. And you have to be ruthless. If you're a good gardener, you just get rid of things. Uh, you don't try to make them work when you know they're not going to work. Then uh, there's a, a lot of weeding. You can't be a good gardener unless you like weeding. And uh, unless you like grading papers, on some level, interacting with students uh, through their written work, uh, I, I don't see how you can really like teaching. Um, and that, that also means making judgments uh, at times, uh, judgments that, are, that may be hard, uh, may not be comfortable. But at the end of the day, what you're looking for is the fruit. You're looking for the flower. Uh, you're looking for the yield. And a, a garden produces way more than you can really envision when you're doing the planning. And the same is true, I think, with our students. Uh, when we see after 20 years after graduation what some of our students are doing, it makes us extremely happy and uh, proud in a certain sense, but not, not, not in the bad sense, because you realize that uh, what's happened is simply the flourishing of what was there. And you had a little bit to do with it, but you had a little bit to do with it. Faith in the classroom 
has several different aspects to me. It does include things like devotions, uh, from time to time at least. It does include uh, talking specifically about uh, issues of faith as they come up in the sub subject material. And that, um, that's fairly easy to do in my field, which is literature mostly before 1800. Um, but it also comes up in classroom management. Um, if education is a, a pilgrimage, then you may be leading the pilgrimage, but you are together on, the, on that journey. And so if, this is a shortcoming of mine, I think, uh, if you, you're not listening to where students uh, are on their pilgrimage or you're not uh, willing to uh, alter uh, things as they go along, then it, it's, it's not com a completely faithful exercise of your vocation. Faith in the classroom involves even what the syllabus looks like. Uh, listening to uh, uh, voices of faith and uh, designing the course uh, so that uh, these kinds of questions can come up. Faith also, I think in, in literary studies, uh, does offer a significant uh, set of perspectives. Um, the most obvious might be what, what we think of uh, as the word. Um, to take an extreme example, is the word, uh, the word of a literary text, something that uh, can, should be deconstructed? Is it something that uh, can be set against a, a theoretical overlay? Or, um, it, in my view, uh, is, is there a, uh, a degree of autonomy that a work of art attains uh, that, that needs to be respected. So that's kind of a deep theoretical uh, view that informs my teaching. And it's, it's different from uh, a, a lot of the theoretical approaches of today. I'd say my favorite classes to teach now are, are the humanities classes. And the, the reason is that uh, we can have those students for four semesters, so we get to know them very well. We have TAs that usually stay with us for four semesters, and so we get to see how they grow and get to um, nurture them, mentor them. Uh, and uh, I love team teaching. I love having a conversation with uh, creative people uh, who will come into a meeting and uh, after sitting around and grousing for about five minutes, uh, we'll come up with ideas about uh, Plato or Tocqueville or uh, Jane Austen that, that I, I hadn't thought of. And um, they will uh, contribute to each other, contribute to the, the TAs in ways that I hadn't ex expected. But um, being able to have students for that many semesters is a uh, unique and uh, it's a special thing. Teaching literature is a challenge because nobody really knows what it is or what it means. What it means. Uh, when when um, I have students uh, talking about senior seminar projects, 
this kind of anxiety comes out the most because uh, they don't know what to do. And they, they think, uh, or at least typically think, that they need to talk about the historical background or they need to talk about the theology of or they need to talk about women and or <laughs> some other field of, of study overlaid on literature. And I understand that anxiety because most people in literature don't know what, what it means to study literature. It's a very contested field. So the idea that you would actually study um, the, the perspective that Jane Austen uh, uses or uh, that you would uh, look closely at, at stylistic issues or uh, setting or dialogue, helping students understand poetic meter uh, figurative language. All of these are in the service, of course, of so what? What does it mean? Uh, so they're in the service of the issues that come up in history and politics and religion and theology. But they're not the same as studying history and politics and religion and theology. It's, a, it's its own field and figuring that out is a big challenge. By the time students come into my classes, most students want to read. And there, there are many, many students who have had good experiences in reading literature uh, before they get to my classes. However, I do think the phenomenon of, of students not reading is, uh, is, is huge. Uh, and it's, of course, gotten much worse in recent years because of social media and, and technology and so on. How do you get students to read? They have to fall in love with something literary that, that is, they have to fall in love with poetic rhythm. So in, this, in that sense, rap music has been a huge benefit to poetry because students get it. They get the importance of rhythm as a key element of the craft of poetry. Or they have to see that using figurative language, saying uh, one thing to mean another, is truly a way of understanding that other thing. That's what figurative language does. Or they have to see that um, creating characters with psychological depth is actually interesting, that they, that they need to know more uh, about uh, Elizabeth Bennet, or they need to know more about um, uh, Scrooge. Uh, uh, because it's intrinsically interesting. So they, they have to get interested in some element of literature, whether it's irony or tone or figurative language or rhythm or character or plot. Um, and then, then they can, then they'll catch the bug. At the end of the semester, when the classes are over and we're into exams, uh, Sometimes uh, people will say very sympathetic things like, oh, this, is, this must be very hard. You have all these papers to grade. And my, my comment is, sure, there are a lot of papers to grade, but now I don't have to say anything intelligent <laughs> in class. And that's much harder because you really are obligated, if you care about your subject, to serve it. And part of the definition of a classic is that it suggests more questions than you can ask. If, if, if a book doesn't do that, it's not a classic. If a poem doesn't do that, it's not worth teaching. It has to be eternally suggestive of, of new 
topics to be a real classic. And that being the case, uh, you, you can, in a sense, you can never master uh, a classic. It continually asks questions of you. So yeah, it's scary to go into a class and start teaching King Lear or Paradise Lost. Um, it should be scary because many finer minds than mine, <laughs> than anyone who's ever taught these, uh, have, have tried uh, to convey them to students uh, with varying degrees of success. And if, if students leave the classroom not caring about it, then, then you've really failed. But um, e even if you're not a master, as, as none of us is, in, in all of these fields, I do take some comfort in the fact that enthusiasm counts for a lot. <laughs> and if you're enthusiastic about a, uh, an author, even though you're not an uh, expert, like for me, Yeats is someone I really love, but I'm not an expert on Yeats. But I hope my enthusiasm for him has come through when I've taught him. My enthusiasm for authors comes from encountering them and listening to them. So if, if the author is truly great, like Hopkins or Yeats, um, I will get enthusiastic about them in the process of preparing for class and try to convey what is so beautiful or profound about this poem that, that students should spend time learning it. And the enthusiasm often uh, is catching. I'll take an example of someone whom I like a lot but don't know super well. That's Robert Frost. Um, we teach Frost in Humanities 4, in our cohort of Humanities 4. And um, he, I think he's a, a great American poet, uh, not for the Hallmark card uh, version of Frost, but he called himself an Old Testament Christian. And I think that's a very apt uh, description. So to prepare for Frost, I, I do read about him in... Uh, there are certain sources that I would go to that I, that I trust uh, to read about, say, Frost. But primarily, it involves reading the work. And there, there, obviously, there has to be a, a way into the work uh, that works for me. For instance, in, in Birches, Birches is about death. It's about uh, how you're going to spend your time uh, in, in life. So getting students to, uh, students have to be able to see that. But it's also blank verse, so they have to know what unrhymed iambic pentameter is. Um, so I want students to uh, understand how the, the imagery of riding a birch up and down uh, works in terms of uh, Frost's view of death. I want them to love the... Uh, um, the rhythm of the poem, uh, to appreciate the imagery, but I'm not an expert in, in Frost or Frost's details of Frost's life. It's an, an attempt to convey an appreciation for this object, if you will, or this chapter in the novel, whether it's the profundity or the wit, the satire, or, or just the appeal of the, the imagery.
What do students say about me? Yeah, you know, I really, I really don't, don't know that much. I'm not very good at picking up these things. I think they think I'm hard, and uh, they, they, I do have a kind of formal uh, approach to the classroom, which um, uh, that works for me. Um, so I think they think I have high expectations, that I'm thorough. Um, but the students who've traveled with me or who've had me for multiple semesters, I hope they think that um, there's a hospitality to the, to the classroom as well. Um, my wife and I love having senior seminar students come over to our house, so that's a kind of literal way to do that. Um, I like getting together with students, groups of students, uh, outside of class. Um, but I think they, they think I'm hard. <laughs> I, I hope they, they think that um, I showed them some beautiful things in literature, or in the case of humanities, in the, um, the, the questions that make for a good life, that, that I showed them some beautiful things. Um, I hope they have a sense that uh, the truth matters. Um, I hope they have a sense that uh, real freedom is uncomfortable. That having a, an open mind, a free mind, that is uh, committed to truth and yet open to um, correction in, invites a, a life of um, some uncertainty and difficulty. But that uh, with faith, you can, you can live with that. I think I'd uh, tell a completely new teacher uh, not to worry if you don't feel comfortable in the classroom for a while. That uh, teaching is a craft and you can learn it over time. I would advise them to take advantage of team teaching opportunities. I'd tell students uh, to, to make an effort to, to get to know their uh, faculty mentors. That's a large part of what they're paying for, at, at, especially at a place like Bethel. And they, uh, they can get to know faculty in a way that at most other colleges and certainly universities, uh, they wouldn't be able to, to do. Uh, I'd, I'd tell them to be bold in uh, developing relationships with, their, um, with faculty. As Bethel moves forward, I do believe that there is and will be a niche for institutions that are strongly aware of their mission. And uh, I think there's always a danger of uh, uh, a vision leaking or a mission uh, getting off course. And uh, I, I do think we need to be uh, true to our mission, our vision of who we are. And there are lots of pressures. I, I think there are going to be legal pressures to, uh, to distract us from, from that. And I think we do that at our, our peril.